give you a little heads up. My sermon today is probably different than those of you that are used to hearing me preach. And I will tell you, those of you that are here for the first time, it's going to be a little different because it is pastoral in nature. And what I mean by that, it is going to be less of a Bible study this morning and more of a pastoral conversation with his congregation. Um, I'm, I usually... I'm led during the week to preach on a topic and I look in the scripture and study it and see what God has to say about that topic. And that's how the sermon comes to birth and what I preach on Sunday mornings. And I usually say, turn with me in your Bibles to a certain place. But actually, my model for preaching this morning is more of a model than it is a text. When I study the book of Acts, there are moments when the Apostle Paul had pastoral conversations with the people that he shepherded. When I look at the, the letter to the church at Philippi and the letter to the church at Corinth, both of them, and I, I look at the letters to different congregations that the Apostle Paul established and pastored and wrote to, there were moments when he had intimate conversations with them. Sometimes he exhorted them and encouraged them. Sometimes he rebuked them and corrected them. But often a father as a child would, to his child would encourage them. Sometimes he would correct them. But they were pastoral in nature. They were loving in nature. They were intimate. And that's what this is today. It's a pastoral conversation with the North Place congregation. So you say, well, pastor, I don't attend North Place. I'm a guest. I'm just passing through town. However, I believe there is relevance in this message to you. I think there are some scriptural truths that are going to speak to your life. I also believe if you're interested in becoming a part of a church and you're searching and looking, today will help answer some questions for you about who North Place is, where we're going, and what God is doing among us. So while this is a conversation I'm having with my congregation, you're sitting in on it. I believe if you listen to the heart of it, there is value for you as a guest, especially if you're seeking God about your spiritual growth in the future. When we bought the 140 acres, uh, that is, it's hard to describe to people exactly where it is. It won't be when the George Bush tollway is finished. But the tollway that goes all the way to Firewheel Mall, the next exit beyond that is the 140 acre track of property. They're building the road right in front of that. When we bought that piece of property, I began to sit down with people that go to church in groups of about 30. And I talked to about 70% of this congregation in, in groups of 30 at a time. I called them pie meetings, pastors information exchange. I cast the vision, I answered the questions, and we had conversations together about those things. Well, in, in the process of that, I got to share a vision. Today is somewhat like a pie meeting, a pastor's information exchange. And I haven't forgotten the fact that it's Super Bowl Sunday. And, and in light of that, I started thinking about, you know, what do the coaches of the, of the two teams have to do if they have any chance of winning the game today? Well, you've got to have a vision. You've got to know what that vision is. You've got to be specific about that vision. But that vision has to be tested. It has to be tried. It has to be evaluated to see if it's going to be successful, if the strategy is going to work. And then you've got to execute. So you have to have a vision. It has to be evaluated. And then you have to execute on what stands the test, on what stands the trial. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning as a part of the North Place team, about our vision, about the evaluation of that vision, and about what it's going to look like as we execute that vision moving forward. For those of you that were here in 2006, you will remember that God began to stir us about relocating years before 2006, but it began to take fruition in 2006. We went to the Garland Event Center, 
And uh, we didn't occupy but one end of that 10,000-seat arena. There were about 1,500, maybe 1,600 people there that day. And all of these empty seats were there. And the Lord really directed us to take names that were in a box. And we had a box of names that people had been placing care, people they care about in, praying over their needs. But a lot of them, we were praying that they would come to faith in Christ. We were praying that these people, whether you work with them or their family members or they live around this church, that God would do something in their lives and bring them into relationship with Jesus. There were thousands of names in that box. And so for all of the empty seats in that arena in July of 2006, we took all of those thousands of names and we plastered them on the empty seats in that arena believing God would help one day take a sanctuary and fill it up changing the lives of people, redeeming them by God's grace, and they would one day worship with us in a facility somewhat like that. Along that journey, we have seen a lot of those people come to faith. There are people in this room today, or or in the early service this morning, who started out in that box, and this congregation prayed over them, and now today they do occupy one of those seats. The prayer has been answered, and they worship with us at North Place Church. The vision has been about reaching those people with the love of God and the grace of God. I could take you back through the history books of this church. There have been prophetic words and prayers over this church that there would be something unique that God would do through the heart of this congregation and that people would come from the north, south, east, and west to engage in what God was doing in the lives of people. He would move here and it would spread all over Dallas and to the rest of the world. I could I could read them to you. Been, this church is nearly 90 years old and people that have gone to church here have been holding out on that vision, dreaming aiming for that and seeing small promises of that throughout the years. That's part of the vision. That this becomes a place where lives are changed by the grace of God. Not a gathering of perfect people, but a gathering of imperfect people, of broken people, of people who realize it's not enough in themselves. They, they need God to come into their lives, redeem them to find that purpose. You see, Proverbs gives us a wise saying in Proverbs twenty nine eighteen that without a vision, people will perish. I spent a great deal of time last year talking to you about that verse. In the Hebrew, the word vision is kazon. In other words, without a kazon, without a vision, your life will perish. There will be no satisfaction. There will be no purpose. God created you out of dirt. But He didn't create you out of dirt so you could occupy space. He created you out of dirt because He had a purpose for that dirt. There was a destiny for the dirt He made you out of. And He breathed life into you because there's a plan for your life. There is a kazon for your life. Just like there's a kazon for my life, a vision for your life, there is a kazon and a vision for a church. And a lot of believers and a lot of churches wander aimlessly throughout their existence living with dissatisfaction and unfulfillment because they never stop long enough to find out why it is they're alive and why God put them here. When you make that discovery through scripture and you make that discovery through prayer and spiritual growth, there's a sweet spot in life, an effectiveness in life, a fulfillment in life. I realize that a lot of people's kazone and vision is shattered because of what people say about them. You'll never do this. You'll never be any good at this. There are words that are spoken over you. There are things that have happened to you that shatter your kazone. And there are a lot of people that go against the dreams of a congregation, naysayers and dream killers that try to stop the vision God has placed in a congregation. And I realize that a lot of churches just chase after the latest great fad and their vision stop and they're stunted because it's about the time they get this one going, they stop and chase after another one and then another one to be with the latest greatest thing that's going on in the church world. 
The Lord spoke to me last year in March and really dealt with me, or actually February, about a year ago, that our congregation was guilty of some of that. We wanted to be a little like this one, and we want to be a little like that one, and we, we borrowed from all of them. And in the process, because people came here from everywhere, there were all of these competing visions and competing priorities and we were not living our kazone, our vision that God gave us. We were trying to recycle somebody else's. And in the process, we had spiritual schizophrenia. And we needed to draw the line in the sand, find out what God was saying to us, and go after it with all of our hearts. And in the last year, we've been in a discovery process of what that vision says more clearly. Now, when you move from the vision and the strategy to the evaluation of that strategy, every vision has to be tested. Coaches of those Super Bowl teams are saying, here's the game plan, shoot holes in it. And time and trial and error let you know whether or not that game plan is going to work. For most of us that have been a part of North Place Church for a while, we would probably admit we didn't expect to still be in this building. Most of us felt like we would have already been relocated and probably in the first phase of another building so that things wouldn't be as cramped as they are this morning. There are those of you that have come to North Place and attended here longer than me. And you were even in the process of trying to build a building before I came. You had drawings from an architect and you were in the process of moving. And so the delay for you seems even longer than the delay for me. When you believe something for so long and never see it happen, the dream has a tendency to get tired. Maybe your dream is tired. The dream connected to North Place Church or maybe your personal dream. The dream for your marriage or the dream for your business or the dream for your children. Maybe it's become tired because of the delay. Some get so tired in the delay that they quit on their faith and they often quit on their dreams. Some even quit on the promises of God in their lives because there is too much delay between God's promise and the fulfillment of His promise in your life. But you need to understand, we have learned at North Place Church, and we're in the process of learning, that a delay from God is not always a denial from God. You need to understand that the delay in your life may be as much of a miracle as the miracle you're waiting on itself. Sometimes we forget about the sovereignty of God. We forget that God can work in the midst of our delay. And let me say to you this morning, I believe the delay in this church reaching our new property may be one of the greatest gifts God has ever given me personally and one of the greatest gifts God has ever given this church corporately. You see, it's in this delay that God has grown me. He is maturing me. He has convicted me. It's in the process of this delay that God is changing me as a person and as a pastor. If you will indulge me for a second, um, I want to, I want to, this is a confessional for a moment. One of my personal values is intentional vulnerability and, uh, and transparency, sometimes to the point of uncomfortableness. But I, I want to I be honest with you this morning about the evaluation of our vision. When my family first moved to Dallas in 2005, I was chasing a dream. A dream to make a significant impact on the kingdom of God. With all of my heart, I believe God led us to pastor this congregation because the vision of my family for the future matched the vision and the heart of this congregation to make a significant impact for the kingdom of God. There was nothing wrong with our vision. There was nothing wrong with our dream. But in my life, call it youthful zeal or whatever, there was a degree of unhealthy ambition in my heart. 
that caused me to fall more in love with the dream of building a great church than I was in love with Jesus. I was more passionate about getting to a new property and building a new building and filling it with people than I was the mission of God in our world. I'm still on a journey to fully get my head around what the mission of God is in our world, but I have learned to know what it is not. Dallas does not need another big church that has the latest and greatest of everything simply to attract every disgruntled Christian in the Metroplex. If you would have asked me five years ago, we were growing leaps and bounds. We were about to buy a piece of property and build a church. And how we grew really didn't matter to me. If warm bodies were coming in the building, we were growing and something must be going right. But I realized, in Dallas, if you got a right building, the right kind of preaching, the right kind of music, you niche market to the right kind of people. There are enough Christians in somebody's church today looking for something bigger and better that you can grow a church in Dallas, Texas and the buckle of the Bible belt and never reach one soul for Jesus in the process. And God has so con- just ripped my heart out because if we would have gone, if there had been no delay, if God would have just answered all the prayers we prayed and we'd have gone over there and the plan was paid for and we would have built the building, we would be growing. But we would be top heavy because our foundation would not be as... And everybody would be talking about what kind of success we are. And they'd be singing our praises and all of those kinds of things. And all the while, we're running a ship that is full of people that's about to turn over because the spiritual roots weren't as deep as the success. And there's one thing I learned in my life. Success cannot outrun your character. And God is working on our character. This delay is a gift so that when we transition again and we move to a piece of property, our hearts will be pure. And the growth that happens won't because we're just marketing to every other disgruntled, tithe-paying Christian so they can jump on our boat and get happy until they get mad and go to the next big thing that comes along. We need to engage. How can we reach the people that were in that box? How can we love the broken people under the shadow of this roof line? How can we touch the people the church has ostracized? How can we be so much of Jesus to the world that we reach people who've never even been interested in coming to church because we truly love the people that Jesus... He didn't come according to Mark's gospel. He didn't come for the spiritually healthy. In chapter 2 verse 7, he came for the sick. It literally says in the message Bible, he did not come to coddle religious insiders. He came for the outcast. Let me th- Part of my confession is I know how to do it the old way. I, I don't know how to do it the way I'm telling you. I grew up in churches all my life that were more interested in maintaining the status quo than engaging the world around them. And I don't want to, I don't want to lead one of those churches. I don't want to pastor one of those churches. And God, if, if you've got to delay us 20 years till we get it right, let us get your heart so that we don't go over there and just become another church that's got the right lights and the right music and just another place for an unhappy sheep to go change and find pastures somewhere else. 
Let us be a place that is sold out to the vision of Jesus in Luke 19. He said, I came to seek and save that which was lost. And to us, they are the sought. They are the, God's heart is for the sought. Some of them are very religious. Some of them are a-religious. Some of them are outright defiantly irreligious. But God died for all of them. And our heart has to beat for them. I can't imagine Jesus wanting another church in Dallas whose vision is growing from another church's uh, problems or another church's issues. We don't need that. And listen, He definitely wants growth, but the right kind of growth. In the world that God created, living things that are healthy grow. Lest you say, I'm glorifying being small. And there are a lot of people that have that mentality. They're glorifying being small. Big is bad. Let me tell you, growth is not God's enemy and big is not bad to God. Some people think that that you shouldn't count. Well, if you shouldn't count, why is one of the books of the Bible named Numbers? All through the Old Testament and the New Testament... God counted their genealogies, their accounts, their send out their twelves and their seventies sent out by two because numbers matter, because every number is a soul to God. But if we're going to fill a place up, it can't just be because we like seeing it full. We need to question our motives in saying, God, is it a full building that matters or is it a church doing the right things? And God is more interested with our spiritual health than He is our numerical growth. And when we get our heart engaged with spiritual health, He'll take care of the numerical growth. Growth is not God's enemy because healthy things grow. You know, most of the people that say that we shouldn't uh, worry about numbers is the people that don't have any to count. And, and, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I just, I want you to know this. If you're in a rural community and you're running 100 people and your town has 500 people in it, percentage-wise, you're more significant to the kingdom than everybody else in Dallas, Port Worth that has a megachurch. You're reaching your city. But if you run 100 people in a town of millions and you've not grown in 50 years, there's an issue you need to talk about. Because healthy living things grow. And it's those questions that have sent me into deep soul searching. And it's not growth that's the issue. It's the right kind. Growing for the wrong reasons and getting bigger the wrong way can be the enemy to God's plan. When growth is not the enemy, big is not the enemy, but the wrong motives can be the enemy of God's plan of engaging a world that desperately needs to know His love. If you're shocked... Or surprised by the honesty regarding my personal airings, don't be. The scripture says that the heart of man is deceitfully wicked. And if we were more honest, there were more admissions of our airings more often. It is more natural for fallen flesh to err than it is for us to stay the course. I will err, you will err, organizations will err, churches will err. It is the natural slide of fallen flesh. Don't be surprised by the erring, but be bothered when we don't have enough wisdom or spiritual discernment to recognize our erring and make the needed course corrections. To me, this delay of reaching the dream, the promised land, is probably the greatest gift God could have ever given us. It's the... It, to me, it's very familiar to what I see happening to the Old Testament saints. You know, 
God gave them a promised land and they wandered around for 40 years in the wilderness before they ever got in. I don't believe they had to wander for 40 years. I believe they got their eyes so focused on the promised land that they forgot about the purpose of why God gave them a promised land in the first place. He gave them a land to establish a place for His presence to make His name famous in the world. But they got their eyes so full of the miracle, their hearts so focused on the promise that they lost sight of the purpose. I wonder. Maybe that didn't, that's not what happened to me. I wonder if that maybe has happened to some of us. That we've been so focused on the answer to prayer and the miracle of God in our life or the promise of God in our life we got focused on the promise and forgot about the purpose of the promise. You see, they wandered 40 years on the pro- waiting on the promised land and it took them that long to rediscover their purpose. If they would have got it in 10, they may have went in sooner. If they'd have learned sooner, they could have entered sooner. And maybe this delay is less about our lack of resources and more about God accomplishing His purpose in our lives. Look, look. Come on, I mean, it's not resources. God's never lacked resources to accomplish His goal. I mean, He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. All He's got to do is sneeze and pay off our debts. If, if, we, could, if we could capture the purpose and the depth of what He's doing, the sooner we grasp the deep work of God among us as He checks our motives, checks our heart, Maybe the sooner we go in, we capture the purpose. I want to show you a video this morning. It's a rather intriguing video. I ran across it a few weeks ago talking to a gentleman who had read an article in the Washington Post. The article was entitled, Pearls Before Breakfast. It's a story of a young 39-year-old Caucasian who was in the corner of a metro train station in Washington, D.C., He took a violin box and opened it and turned it around so that 1,097 people who would pass by there in the next 43 minutes could see it. It was not unusual for those people to see a musician playing for tips in the cityscape of an urban area. So none of them thought anything about it. But the difference that day is this composer, songwriter, violinist did not play familiar songs from the radio that would immediately caught people's attention. He played masterpieces that had been endured for centuries. Their brilliance alone ought to have caught their attention. The kinds of music he was playing should be reserved for the grandeur of cathedrals and concert halls. But yet, they put a Washington Nationals cap on a 39-year-old young man, gave him a violin and let him play to see who would notice. You have to understand, this wasn't just some 39-year-old man. He is arguably the greatest violin player that ever lived. His name is Joshua Bell. And days before he played in the Metro, he sold out Symphony Hall. The cheap tickets were $100 a ticket. A few days after that, he performed at another prominent musical recital hall and sold it out with the aristocrats and the affluence attending because of the renown of his name. The Library of Congress has in its vault the most expensive violin in the world, valued at over $3 million. When they wanted someone to handle it to see if it still could carry a tune, they wouldn't have anybody but Josh Bell handle it. They went into the vault, 
picked it up, rubbed it, played it. It sounded so good, he had a concert in the Library of Congress and played in front of a few people. The kind of people that walked by him that day in the metro were government officials. These people are learned people. They are folks that are supposed to understand art, culture, and beauty. But watch what happened. When the greatest violinist in the world played a $3 million violin. Only one person out of 1,097 in a period of 43 minutes recognizes the world's greatest violinist playing some of the most well-known masterpieces of classical music on a $3 million violin. And the only reason she noticed it is because she had seen him before. The question it begs of our heart is how often is beauty in front of us and we don't ever recognize it? It's so easy to miss the beauty of what is happening right in front of us. It is easy to miss the beauty of what is happening on the inside of us. Because we measure success and significance by so many faulty external metrics, we often feel we are failing when we might be living in the most rewarding season of our lives. You see, life is not about the destination. Life is about the journey. But so many of us get caught on the promised land that we devalue the process that God takes us on to get us there. And the greatest part of life is enjoying it. And it's all of excitements and all of its failures. But when you're driven like me, you're so vision focused on tomorrow. You're so focused on the mission that you can't enjoy the moment. You can't stop to live and learn and enjoy the value of what God is giving to you as a gift in the precious present. So many of us are wandering for the wilderness in the delay between the promise of God and its fulfillment that we're missing the beauty of what God is doing in us right now. Because God is less concerned about getting us to a new piece of property to build a bigger building and more concerned about transforming our lives along the way. We can't miss the beauty of what He's doing in us. Don't miss the beauty in the delay. Because I've learned the bigger the dream, the longer the incubation period. Don't miss the beauty of what He's doing. There's personal maturation going on in all of us. 
your pastoral staff is growing up. And you think, well, y'all should have. You're all kids. Well, we are all kids. And thank God for being young. But we're growing up in a different way. We're growing up in what matters most. You see, there's a redefinition of success for us as people and for us success as a church. No longer is success spirit or numerical growth alone, but success for us is spiritual growth. That's why the 800 plus involved in small groups this semester to me is a much greater significant number of success than 3,500 people that showed up on Easter Sunday last year. See, I can stand up on Easter and tell those people Merry Christmas because that'll be the next time I see them. And I can tell them Happy Easter at Merry Christmas because, okay, never mind. The deeper growth is doing life together week in and week out and studying the Word of God. And it's happening. The small group initiative has started. The missional focus, loving people underneath the shadow of the roof line of this church, becoming a compassionate church. We have always sent money around the world to love people in the mission field. But God has recalled us to correct social injustice and be engaged in compassion initiatives right here in our own city. Because we have rediscovered a heart for broken people. To me, that's the beauty of what is happening in this delay. You see, some of you look up here, and there was one in the foyer. It was empty, but this one's full of dirt. It's got dirt on it, and there's a bag of dirt on it. I know it's real dirt because I shoveled it myself. And when you look at it, you may say, well, that's just dirt. Don't miss the beauty in front of you. You see dirt. I invite you to see more than dirt this morning. It isn't just dirt. It's destiny. Father, I'm here this morning because your word promises me that I can cast my care upon you. And Lord, I realize I'm standing on this piece of property, a property that it would appear you gave us. And we believe it was destiny. We gave you opportunity to lead us somewhere else and ask you to close the door. But in meeting after meeting with city and engineer and prayer meeting after prayer meeting and nearly unanimous congregational votes, again and again you confirmed that it was the destiny of this church to set on this high place and that you would give us the souls and the cities that we could see from here. And yet, God, now that we're in the middle, we bought it. We followed you. We're in the middle of a recession, one of the greatest since the Great Depression. And God, I believe your word gives me permission to remind you of your promises. You promise that you're in the middle of the impossible, that when people step out in courageous faith, you respond to that. Jesus, you said in your word in Matthew 19, 26, that that with men, these kinds of things are impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And some people may think I'm out here today just stirring dirt. This isn't just dirt. This is destiny. Because what has grown cows and crops for over a hundred years wasn't created to grow cows and crops. It was created to grow people. This was supposed to be a place where addicts are delivered and families are restored and children and young people, teenagers meet Jesus Christ and the hopeless find hope in the saving relationship with you. That's what this is. Lord, my heart is like that of Jonathan in 1 Samuel 14 when the odds were stacked against him and there was only one sword in all of Israel and he and his armor bearer, just the two of them with one sword, snuck up to fight the enemy. 
outnumbered. And yet Jonathan said, perhaps God will act in our behalf. Lord, I'm standing here today because North Place believes perhaps God. One of the core values of this church is courageous faith. And we take that courageous faith from the story of Jonathan and his armor bearer where they were fighting the enemy, had one sword for the entire nation of Israel. Their enemy had more numbers and they were better equipped. And the rest of the army of God was afraid. But Jonathan and his armor bearer went to battle with one sword and one statement. Perhaps God. There is no, there is no guarantee. It is just a maybe. Just, just maybe. But I would rather give God a chance to act on our behalf than to live in the status quo, than to settle for less than what God died for, than to settle for less than His plan for our life. So courageous faith is willing to look without a guarantee and say, I will put my trust in God's maybe rather than settling for less. Perhaps God. You know, the teams that are meeting today all have a vision. Their vision is all gone through evaluation. But the team that's going to win tonight is the one who executes their strategy the best. I know it's Super Bowl Sunday. I haven't forgotten that. And usually on Super Bowl Sunday, we're all in jerseys and we're acting crazy. And, and I didn't wear my jersey today. We almost had this thing directed like a, a locker room we have in the past. And I came out with my cap and my whistle. And I told him, I don't want to dress like coach today. I want to dress like the owner. I almost wore a tie. And I didn't even wear a tie today. So I, I, I don't want to be Jerry Jones. So that's not, that's not what I'm trying to be. But, but let, me, let me play coach or owner for a moment. And just explain to those a little bit about sports that maybe not today, you could care less about today or engage in it, but let me spoof off of it for a moment. You know, people that are so reserved anywhere else, if they're fanatics for sports, you get them in that environment and you'll see another schizophrenic side of them. I've had people that have complained to me about the volume of music in church and the demonstrative way so-and-so worshiped and you get them to their alma mater in a college football game and they will lose their mind and act a fool. And I don't get it. But So sports, you know, you got fans in Green Bay in 10 below weather painting themselves green without shirts on. They're idiots. I mean, it's just, I just don't get it. Sports bring out fanaticism. It's a place for people to let their hair down. So I'm going to invite you to let your hair down for a minute. Okay, this is what, look. For those of you who don't understand sports, when a, when a team, they get four tries to go 10 yards. If they punch it across the first down marker, they get another four tries. If they do that enough, they score points. They go 100 yards, they score points. Sometimes it takes them all four tries. Sometimes they do it in one. And sometimes when they're fighting so hard to move that ball, throwing it, running it, whatever, to get it 10 yards and punching it across that line, every time they score first down, the referee goes, first down. They move the change. It means we made progress. We got new life. It's a do-over. We keep the ball. There's hope. We keep trying. And sometimes the guy that ran the ball playing to the home crowd, when he stretches and sticks that ball across the goal line, he gets up and does one of these. And the crowd goes nuts. Because it means we still have the ball. There's still hope. We're making progress. Something good just happened. I want you to let your hair down for a minute. I, I, I want you to try something. I'm, I'm going to give you the first down symbol. And I want you to act fanatical for a moment. We're going somewhere with this. I want to see how good. I'm going to see if you're starchy, whatever, or, or if you really know how to have a good time. Let's try. 
Oh, all right. I thought we were going to have to do that a couple times, but you got it on the first one. You beat all the deadbeats in the first service by a mile. You did good. I want to show you something. I want to show you what God's been doing among us. He's been doing for some time. There's a slide on the screen. In 2006, our church was in debt on this property, almost $1.2 million. This property and some of the block around it, and we knew we needed to leave here, but we knew we couldn't go anywhere, and we still owed money on this building. I became the pastor in 2005, and God really dealt with me early on to get rid of this debt because it was the albatross around our neck for moving forward. So we started an initiative. We called it freeing the future because we knew whatever the future was God had for this church, it was in bondage to $1.2 million of old debt. And so we went to that arena I told you about a moment ago. We put all of those names on there. We asked people to give to free this church from its debt so that we could move closer down the road of fulfilling the vision of God had for this church. And in a matter of six months and a few days, from July the 9th to the end of January, of July the 9th, 2006, and before the end of January 2007, $1.2 million had been eradicated. And people, I mean, their love to God led them to be obedient to the nudging of His Spirit, and they moved in sacrificiality. They gave houses, people gave cars, they donated themselves, they got second jobs. And in six months, we eradicated $1.2 million in debt. First 